Good morning. I'm so happy to be with you. This is lesson three of our study in Romans. And uh, before we even start, let's have a prayer uh, for you and me so that we can be in the right mindset and continue with this. So if you would, go with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time that we could be together through this method. We thank you so much, Lord, for the blessing of technology that we could continue um, our studies. Uh, even though we are apart uh, due to uh, this pandemic. Lord, we would ask that you be with us as we uh, enter into this study, that our hearts and minds can be open, uh, that you will help me to uh, be able to say the things that I have, have prepared and, uh, and studied on, that uh, these will not be uh, my thoughts, but, but your words, Lord. Uh, be with each and every one of us. Bless us. Lord, we would ask that you be with uh, not only our nation, but the world as we continue to fight this pandemic. Uh, so many people are, are suffering from it. It's caused such uh, upheaval. We would ask, Lord, that you would, um, we know you have the power to end this. And we beg of you, Lord, to uh, bring this to an end. Um, but Lord, we know that your will will be done in all of this. And at this time, we can focus our minds on you, Lord, and we're thankful for that. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he made for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So lesson three in Romans. Now, if you remember in last week's lesson, we closed out by doing a self-examination of our everyday life. The very same action that Paul was encouraging upon his fellow Jews. So let's start there before we move on to today's lesson. So if you remember, I asked you some questions. So let's go through those quickly. And on. Now, these are things that we need to be asking ourselves every day, really. Uh, as a Christian, we need to step back and, and examine our, our, our lives to be sure that we're on track. So the very first one, um, is there hypocrisy in my life? Do my actions and thoughts go opposite of what I teach and say. Now, this can happen so easily. Um, I find even in, in my own life, many times I've got to stop, take a step back, and, and remember that my actions, my thoughts, and what I say all have to align. Second question is, in our actions, who are we looking for praise from? The world or God our Father? Third, does God consider me faithful to him? Fourth, have I taken God for granted and lost my focus? Fifth, do I make excuses for my spiritual failures? Now, that last question too can be an everyday thing because uh, many times in, in our own life, we don't like to take responsibility for even the day-to-day -day things that we do at work, at home, dealing with other people and our our relations, but really what's most important is our spiritual failures because those can knock us off track to being back with God. So again, these are very personal questions and they're part of what we like to call a life application. How do we apply God's word to us? His inspired word uh, as thoughts and deeds and how we interact with those around us as well as build a personal relationship with our God. So in today's lesson, Paul is going to help us understand faith. 
justification by faith. In verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul declared that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. And he quotes, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, let's look at verse 21. And I hope you have your Bible open and will follow along. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, that verse right there itself has quite a bit to it. Paul is pointing out that the righteousness that comes without the law is now here and was predicted foretold and prophesied by the law and the prophets. The law was there to point out that we have sin, to make us aware of it. But it is also pointing to a way that um, we are going to have that righteousness. Okay, so we're down verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's stop right there. There is so much meat on the bones of these verses, and we are going to have to nibble away at it. So in verse 22, Paul introduces to them the concept of receiving this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for everyone, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, because all have sinned and fallen short. Now, let's, let me give you a picture, okay? I want you to have a picture in your mind as we continue here. At the crack of a bat on the ball, a runner leaves second base, rounds third, and is heading home. He's putting everything he has into his effort. And as he approaches home plate, he goes into a slide. When the dust settles, the runner has come to a stop just a few feet from the plate. Even with as much effort and action that the runner put into the play, as much work as he put into it, he has fallen short because of his errors. And we are the very same. We continually fall short from the glory of God because of our own errors, our sin. Paul says that now for that last distance, we will need faith through Jesus Christ. Faith is not a work, but really a response of the broken heart to the saving work of God. Remember, the the Old Testament is pointing us that we have sin. Okay, so that leads to a broken heart, knowing that with that sin, we cannot be with God. But God is going to get us the rest of the distance to home plate because of our faith in Jesus. God had to provide a solution because of our continued sin, and that solution is found in justification. Verse 24 says, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, justification means that a person is pronounced not guilty before God and righteous at the moment of our redemption. Paul says that this is a gift by God's grace, something that is given to us. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. We cannot work for it, pay for it, or do enough for it. God's grace is going to carry us the last little bit to our home plate. God's declaration of righteousness was made possible by the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, the word redemption, we need to understand a bit better. It carries implications of a ransom payment. The term is adapted from the slave market. We were formerly enslaved to sin, but Jesus ransomed us by his death on the cross so we could serve him. Then going into verse 25, we have that explanation of how that solution happens. Propitiation. I have trouble just saying it. Is that a word you use in everyday language? No. So let's understand it better. Propitiation is a big word that means satisfaction. Now, I'm oversimplifying it, yes, but to help us understand it, I want you to know that it means satisfaction. Because God is a holy God, his anger and justice burns against sin, and he has promised that sin will be punished. There must be a satisfactory payment for sin. Jesus is that payment. His blood atones for our sins, pays for our sins. The NIV version uses sacrifice of atonement in place of propitiation. So we can understand the idea that Jesus' blood is the sacrifice that satisfies God's anger and judgment. The original Greek translation of propitiation has a far deeper connection to the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, the inspired writer discusses the tabernacle arrangement of the Old Testament system and helps us understand it more. In chapter 9, verses 3 through 5 of Hebrews, it reads, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So let's understand that a little bit better. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in that inner compartment called the Holy of Holies. Within the Ark were the golden pot of manna, Aaron's almond rod, and the tablets of stone inscribed with the Ten Commandments. On top of the ark was a lid called the mercy seat. In a manner of speaking, the mercy seat concealed from the Lord's view the ever-condemning judgment of the law. Each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. The point conveyed by this imagery is this. It is only through the offering of blood that the condemnation of the law can be halted, and violations therefore covered. Jesus' sacrifice of himself, his blood, covers our sin. Jesus is our mercy seat. 
So now let's get back to Romans. We're going to be chapter three, verse 25. Paul says that God did all this to demonstrate his righteousness in his forbearance, literally meaning holding back. He suspended full punishment for our past sins. In the Old Testament, this was done by animal sacrifice. These sacrifices were only a shadow of what was to come. Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our salvation is the ultimate sacrifice. God loves his children so much that he made a way to cover our sin and halt his judgment. Like I said, these verses had a lot of meat for us to digest. So let's continue with Paul's writings. Verse 27. If you got your Bible, follow along. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. All right, so let's stop right there and get into this. So can we boast about our work for this salvation? Paul says no. Okay, since we are justified by grace through faith, nothing of our work can be involved. Salvation itself is a free gift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul makes this even more transparent. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We cannot boast about the work we are doing because it is not going to bring about salvation. Okay, again, Paul reaffirms in 29 and 30 that this is for Jew and Gentile alike. And since he thinks like them, he knows that the next question is, does this salvation through faith nullify the law of Moses? His answer, inspired from God, is that the law is established, meaning it is fulfilled when it leads people to acknowledge their sin and then be led to Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Paul phrases it this way, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. With that, we move into chapter 4 now. And Paul is going to build his case for faith-based righteousness on two of the most respected figures in the Old Testament, Abraham and David. The Jews thought they had a privileged relationship with God because of their physical relationship with Abraham. If Paul could show that Abraham was justified not by his works, but by faith, 
then their false presumptions would fall like dead leaves in the winter. So, verse 1, chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Okay, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. All right, so let's, let's get another picture here, just so we're clear on this. Think of this along the lines of your day-to-day -day work for a company or business. Your paycheck is not a gift, but it's rather a debt owed to you. Abraham's life was a perfect illustration of Paul's point that righteousness is not by works, but by faith. If salvation can be attained by works, then it cannot be called a gift of God. Notice that Genesis 15.6 does not say Abraham worked hard for God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, so verse 5 now. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is from Psalms chapter 32, verses 1 through 2. And Paul uses David's words to describe what a blessing it is to be credited with righteousness through faith separately from works. Okay, verse 9, chapter 4. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So in this, Paul is reiterating that this righteousness is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike circumcised and uncircumcised. And he's saying that this righteousness was credited to Abraham before he was circumcised. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So Paul here is saying that the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 was made several hundred years before the law of Moses. The law hadn't been 
brought out yet. The law does not bring salvation, but rather teaches us about our sinful nature and points to the future of righteousness through faith. Verse 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We need to stop here and just note here that Paul says those who are of the law, meaning those circumcised, the Jews. Then he says, those who are of the faith of Abraham, meaning the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. So he's covering everybody. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom I whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, this verse here is referring to the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, both of whom were well past the age for having children. Their childbearing days were dead, and Isaac would not exist without God's intervention. That's why he says, gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. Oh, verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed. Now, this is Abraham believing. So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham faced the fact of his aged body and his elderly wife. He knew what the reality of the situation was. Verse 20, Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So Abraham's belief in God's promise grew. His faith in God does not mean refusal to deal with reality. It does not mean ignorance to the world around us. Instead, faith looks beyond these earthly realities to the God who can supernaturally change things. Verse 22, let's pick it up there and says, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Paul here closes out by reflecting on the central role of Jesus Christ in our salvation. Jesus was delivered over to physical death on account of our sins. Then, to show the power of God over death, Jesus was raised to life for our justification. Christ, as the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, paid the ransom price for our sins. 
the free gift of justification is for those who respond by faith in his provision, the crucified Lamb of God. In the typical business world, we are taught that if we work hard, seek increasing responsibilities, sacrifice our time, maybe our family, then we will get the golden reward. But that is not God's way for his children, for you and me. He wants us to believe in him, have faith, that through him and his son, we will get to our spiritual home. Our worldly life is such at odds to our spiritual life. We know that bringing worldly values and attitudes into our spiritual life does not help us focus on God or get us closer to heaven. But could the opposite be true? What would our physical, worldly life be like if we brought faith, belief, and spiritual attitudes into our everyday actions? What if we stopped doing busy work in the church with the mindset that it gets us further along the spiritual road? What if we trusted God that his grace would cover even my blunders? Would we be a different servant? So as we close out this morning, I hope that you can reflect on these. Think on how to apply them to yourself, to your everyday life. Go back through, reread uh, the last part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Uh, review this again for yourself. Next week, we're going to start into chapter 5. Uh, I ask that you read ahead. Uh, be familiar with the verses and the chapters. Read the whole book as a whole. If you have time, if you if you can make time, read the book as a whole, as the letter that it's intended to be. Uh, I'm so happy to be with you again. Uh, I hope that you have gotten something out of this lesson. If you have any questions, comments, please don't hesitate to contact me. Uh, I love hearing from you. And I hope that you have a blessed day. And God bless you through the rest of the week. Goodbye.